All right, good morning once again. Good to be with you. If you have a Bible, we are in Exodus chapter 2. Last week we saw the birth of Moses, and this week uh, Moses reaches adulthood. So kind of happens pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, what we see today, M- Moses really encounters his life's first big crisis. Um, I mean, I guess like last week was a crisis for Mo- but like he was a baby, so he's like born under this law of Pharaoh that he was supposed to be destroyed and he was thrown into the Nile, but he doesn't like remember that. So this is like the first one that he really has to deal with on his own, and it actually ends up, this kind of crisis experience, it ends up doing something very good for Moses in the long run, although I'm sure it doesn't feel that way in the moment. Uh, there's there's, there's a lesson that God wants to teach us. There's, there's a lesson that he wants to teach you like throughout your life. Uh, he wants to teach every person. He, he constantly gives us opportunities to learn this thing that he wants us to, uh, that he wants us to know. The, the degree to which you are willing to learn this determines so much about how you experience your life. It doesn't determine what you experience, whether you're gonna have like a hard life or an easy life. Or it doesn't do anything really to determine what your life is gonna be like, but how you experience it, your perspective in it. Um, this, this lesson has a very powerful shaping influence on that. And learning this lesson is a prerequisite for establishing a relationship with God. And so, you know, if, if that's you, if you don't have a relationship with God, but you, you're seeking him, you want to know him, you want to walk with him, you want to be in a right relationship with him, where, where all the obstacles are removed, your sins are forgiven, you're accepted and adopted as a child of God, you, you need to get this. And some of you, maybe if, if you're in a place where you are walking with God and uh, you have a relationship with him, reminding yourself of the truth of this lesson will only help you to improve and strengthen and deepen your faith and your, your relationship with God. And so the, the lesson is about our limitations. It's, uh, it's acknowledging and accepting what you are not able to do on your own. One of the things I find amazing about the Bible is like, like the earliest parts of it are thousands of years old. The oldest parts, multiple thousands of years old. And yet when we read it and we see the people in it, you start to see like people haven't really changed. Like people are the same. A lot else has changed. Like life here in 2022 where we are is very different than what we see in Exodus thousands of years ago in Egypt. Uh, we've solved all kinds of problems that human beings have faced over the, the thousands of years of sort of progress. Like, we have power grids now. That's kind of cool. We have plumbing. Uh, we have cars, and, and we can fly. I looked it up because I wasn't sure, but you can fly all the way around the world in 45 hours. It would be miserable. You would hate life, but you could do it in less than two days. You can go all the way around the world. It took Magellan three years, and it was harder for him. Um, we, uh, we've, made, we've made medical improvement. We have the internet. The internet, you can have access to all this like free knowledge and like, you can learn anything. Like, I've learned so much on YouTube, it's the best. And, uh, and then we took the internet and we put it in our pockets, which is another major, like I have this weird nostalgia for the time. Remember dial-up internet and like the tone and like you'd like that weird screeching and then you're on and it's America Online and 
and then like your mom says like, I, I need to use the phone, and so you have to get off the internet so she can get on the phone, and like we don't have to do that anymore because we keep solving all these problems and improving, and like we make problems too, and these things have complicated our lives in some ways, um, but like what we're able to accomplish is amazing, and yeah, with all the incredible accomplishments and problems that we've solved over thousands of years and how different life is now than it was then, human hearts are essentially the same. And there's still in our hearts this restlessness and this emptiness, this longing for something that we can never really get, that's never really satisfied. Um, We've never had more more security or comfort or control over our lives than we do now. Like people in general, and I'm not saying that people don't have it hard or there are places in the world where, you know, uh, they really are powerless against many of the things. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that in general, like compared to 500 years ago, the amount of of, uh, security and comfort and control over our lives that we have now is night and day different from 500 years ago. And yet, all those improvements over our, our security and our comfort and control over our lives, that's not doing anything to diminish our anxiety, our depression, our loneliness. Actually, since we've put the internet in our pockets, all the studies are saying those things are trending up. They've always been around. They're not new, but, but they are trending up a little bit. Uh, those are some of the things, some of the problems that we've not been able to fix because there's something broken in us that we don't have the tools to repair. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes says God, when he created us, he put eternity into our hearts. He's created us with a longing in our hearts for eternal things that are only found in him. And because of what's broken in us, the problem of sin, our sinful hearts, we, we chase and look after all the things to satisfy those eternal longings in us, but we do it anywhere except for in God. And, and we can't find it, we can't get it, we remain with this dissatisfied sort of emptiness. Uh, and, and Jesus gets to the heart of this in Matthew 19. He's talking about the problem of salvation, of being made right with God and having what is broken in us fixed and repaired so that we are satisfied by those eternal things that we find in him. But uh, look at this, Matthew 19, when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So for you and me, there's something we're not able to do. It's impossible for us to do. We don't have the tools. We don't have the ability. But with God, all things are possible. He can do what we can't do. He can do for you what you can't do for yourself. That is exactly the lesson that God, again and again, throughout your life, is trying to teach you, trying to show you. It's what he teaches to Moses in what we read today. Sometimes it takes a while to, to learn this, and, and the longer it takes, the more painful it can get before you finally start to understand what, what God really wants you to know. Um, you can't do everything yourself. It's not all up to you. There are things that you're powerless against, but God can do anything. 
and especially for those things that are completely outside of your control, what you need to learn to do is to let go and depend on God and not on yourself. Here in, in Exodus 2, we're going we're gonna to read about Moses uh, growing up. We're going to see how God starts to teach him this. We're going to break uh, the text up really into three parts. We're going to look at what is impressive about Moses, what he is able to do, what is lacking about Moses, what he's not able to do, and then how it is that God starts to change him. So what he can do and what he can't do, and then how God starts to change him. So Exodus 2, starting in verse 11, says this. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. If, uh, if you remember from last week, Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Um, she sends him back to his mother to be nursed, and so he spends some more time uh, with, with his mother, maybe to like two years old or, or around then. Uh, and then after that, he becomes a member of Pharaoh's household. He's adopted in, uh, and this is like the highest, most privileged position that there is in Egypt, which is a world superpower. Uh, at this time. In, in Acts chapter 7, there's a man named Stephen who starts preaching a sermon, and, and it's, it's a great sermon. It's so convicting that it ends with him getting martyred. Um, I hope my sermons are convicting. I'm okay with it if, like, they never get that convicting, you know? Like, you know, if, if it happens, then whatever. I'll be in heaven. You'll be in jail. But, like, you know, if you ever find yourself, like, getting that upset, if you're so heavily convicted and you just don't know what to do with yourself and you're thinking about killing me, just don't. (laughs) You know, just chill out instead. Um, Anyway, Stephen, he's preaching this amazing, convicting sermon. And Stephen says this about Moses. So he's kind of going over the whole history of Israel. He He says this about Moses. He says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So Moses' uh, upbringing to this point, Stephen tells us he's about 40 years old in the account that we're reading here in Exodus 2. And in that time, Moses is instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he becomes mighty in words and deed. He's an elite. In Egyptian society, he's an elite. His status, education, connections, like he's a Kennedy, 
You know, like he's, he's Harvard educated, his family runs the country, like he can do anything that he wants. Uh, there, there's not, no opportunity that's closed off to him in Egypt. Uh, these are things that would make him very impressive in like the eyes of the world. In terms of like worldly measures of, of success, Moses is off the charts. Uh, but what's really impressive about Moses is not his status or his education, it's his character that in spite of all the powerful influences of Egyptian culture and society on him, he becomes a man of great compassion with a heart for justice. When we were in Exodus 1, remember we talked about this, what, one of the plans that Pharaoh has is um, he starts to shift the way the Egyptian people view the Hebrews. He starts to make them subhuman in the eyes of the Hebrews, and he also makes them uh, a, a source of fear, that this is the greatest threat to us right here, so that when they're mistreated, people wouldn't be shocked at that. They'd go, well, this makes sense. First of all, they're not even human. They're not even real people. And second of all, like, if we don't do this, they're gonna, they're gonna hurt us. And so it sort of, it makes sense, and it becomes the, just the, the normal, regular way that, that life is in Egypt. It's the prevailing view of the system that Moses is brought up in. His education would instruct him to think that way, to look at Hebrew people that way. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, the desire to be, so like the desire for social acceptance, to have like your peers like you and accept you and approve of you, like that's a pretty strong influence on us. Uh, it's a pretty strong influence for why like majority opinion, like a lot of people just sign on to it even if they don't necessarily feel very strongly about it. And yet, Moses, in the middle of all that influence, he somehow obtains this sense of compassion for the mistreated Hebrews and has this desire for them to get justice. What makes it so amazing is how much Moses is willing to risk for these ideals. Like, he really stands to lose a lot here. This is not just empty words, but he's really putting so much at stake in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, book of the New Testament, says this about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Like, if Moses wanted to, he had access to like the easiest, most comfortable life that you could imagine in the world at that time. All he has to do is turn a blind eye to what's happening, uh, not kind of raise any, any kind of fuss about it, just accept it as the status quo and not involve himself. But he refuses to do that. He chooses rather to identify himself with the people of God, even though that means he himself would turn into a target for the same mistreatment. Why does he do that? You go back to, to Exodus 2, verse 11, it says, again, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. You see how he's thinking about who these people are? He sees himself in the people who are being mistreated. He doesn't view them as, as separate from himself. Uh, and it's true, he is a Hebrew, he's born to them, but he also has like a pretty convenient way out in that he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. 
And even when he gets to Midian, they think that he's an Egyptian. Like, everyone views him as an Egyptian. It has such an easy way to, like, avoid any kind of uh, collateral damage being treated like one of the Hebrews. This is something all of us should be, it's not the easiest thing to do, but all of us should be able to do what Moses does here, which is to see himself in this other group of people who are receiving different treatment than he is. Uh, even if, you know, whatever the difference is, different ethnicity, different economic status, uh, simply because we're all human beings and we're all made in the image of God. If you want to grow in your compassion, you have to be able to see yourself in the experience of others. Like the more distance that you create in your mind between you and another person or another group of people, the less compassion you're gonna have for them, the less you're gonna care about justice for them. Does that make sense? Whether those people are, you know, Russian or Chinese or Palestinian or rich or poor or Republican or Democrat, whatever it is, like the more differences you create between you and that person to put distance between you, say they're so different from me, uh, the, the, more you, the more you care about how they're different from you, the less you care about them. And the more willing you are to start believing negative things about them. Like the more willing you're like, oh, they're all, they're all lazy, you know, they're all hateful, they're all, like whatever it is, you, you start assigning labels to the whole group and, and you don't even think twice about it because they're so different from you. To grow in compassion, you have to be willing to, to close the distance. I mean, that's what Jesus does, right? Jesus, while we're still sinners, while we still live as enemies to God, Jesus himself, he comes down to us and he draws near to us and he invites us in um, and, and to, to know him. Moses, he, he closes the distance. It's really pretty amazing that he becomes a man of such compassion with a heart for justice that he does, but that doesn't mean that he's perfect. Uh, let's look at how Moses is lacking, what he's not able to do, even with really good intentions. He, he comes up short. Uh, we read about how he sees the Egyptian man beating a Hebrew, and he decides to take matters into his own hands, and, and he like, tries to take on this whole problem all by himself. Like He tries to take on Egypt on his own, but he does it by killing this taskmaster, which is like a pretty low-level person in Egypt. Y you get the idea that Moses knows what he's about to do is not a good thing to do because he looks around first, like he checks, and then he goes and does it. Like, you don't make sure the coast is clear before you do something that's good, you know? Like, you don't, you don't look around and make sure no one's there when you start taking care of the sink full of dirty dishes. Like, you kind of wait until people can see you so they know, right? They know that it was you. Uh, maybe not. But at least, like, if you're taking care of the dirty dishes, you don't care if anyone sees you. You're not embarrassed about it. You don't feel like a, a sense of guilt about it. Uh, Moses, he seems to know this thing is not a really good thing. He doesn't want to be found out. I think his intentions are good. You know, he's motivated by his compassion, by his sense of justice. Uh, it's just a bad plan. The man he kills, he's not like, uh, like he's not taking out Pharaoh. He's not taking out someone who has like power. It's not like a 
it's not like really a strategic move. I don't know, maybe he thinks that when the Hebrews recognize that he's on their side, they'll all unite around him and then they'll be able to, you know, have a big uprising or whatever it is. I don't know what his plan, but that doesn't happen. Like the next day, he breaks up an argument between two Hebrews and, and the, the guy who's wrong says, first of all, who are you? You know, like why do you think that you're in a position to like judge me or, or tell me what's right and wrong and like later God does make him in that position, but right now he's not. Uh, and so he's like, first of all, who are you? Why should I listen to you? And then he goes, what are you gonna kill me too? And then Moses freaks out because he knows, it's like ah, people know about it. Shouldn't have, like, should have looked a little harder when I was looking around. And uh, so he knows it's found out, Pharaoh finds out, and he runs away uh, because Pharaoh now wants to kill him. All around, just a bad plan. <laughs> like, it all falls apart. And, and the root of the problem for Moses at this point in his life, that's the same root problem probably for some of us here in this room, which is that you're trying to be God. In some ways, around certain issues or certain areas in your life, rather than trusting God with those things, you're trying to be God. You're the, you're the kind of person who needs to be in control. That's not everyone. Not everyone has this problem with control. Um, and, and if that isn't you, it doesn't mean like, oh, I'm doing awesome. Because you have your own problems. And uh, we actually see that in Moses. He like swings the pendulum. He goes from this guy who's like trying to take things into his own hands and be God and save the people all on his own. And then he swings the other way and like he doesn't want to do anything. He wants to be totally like passive in life and just let things happen. And, uh, and that's not great either. God has to correct both of those things. And if you're in the other group, we'll correct yours in like, I don't know, two weeks. It even starts next week, I think. Um, anyways, you know you have a problem with trying to be God if you feel like you're the one who's holding everything together. Like everything is depending on you. You're the one who has to make the plan. You're the one who has to prepare. You're the one who has to perform. Uh, if it's not for you, nothing's gonna get done. Nothing's gonna work out. It's all up to you. Does that sound familiar for some of you? Uh, you you don't, um, you don't really trust the people around you. You really only trust yourself. And the people around you, they know that you think that way. Like, they pick up on that. They're, they're gonna feel that. And, and it doesn't feel great to be, like, never trusted, to feel like they can never be good enough for, for your standards. And, and if this is you, if you're the, the control issue person, um, one of the things that you really struggle with, one of the th things you really fear is uncertainty. Like anything that makes your plan deviate, anything that you didn't account for, whenever you're confronted with the fact that as much as you might try, there really are things outside of your control, that's gonna send you down one of two paths. A path of anxiety and fear or a path of anger. The, the reality is you're not in control. And, and then again, that's something that God shows you again and again throughout your life. So much outside of your control. Like look at, like if you're trying to buy a home, if you were good and you saved up and you planned and now mortgage rates are like north of 7%, they've almost doubled. They've more than doubled, actually. 
no one was predicting that. That's outside of your control. Uh, look at Florida. Look at the damage from the latest hurricane. Uh, especially like people. Like people are so unpredictable and uncontrollable and that's always gonna frustrate you if you're this kind of person. You can't really control the people around you. Even the best plants and the most planning, best preparation can be easily shattered by something outside of your control. When that happens and you realize I'm not God, I'm trying to be but I'm, but I'm not, that will either sink you down into a place of anxiety and fear and nervousness and just you don't know what to do with yourself or, and that's internally destructive, or it's gonna uh, send you down a, a path of anger which becomes externally destructive. Now you just think of things like, like, um, like road rage or domestic abuse or just people who kind of just blow their lid at anything. What is the thing that triggers a person like that. Someone did something they didn't want them to do. You shouldn't have done that. And I don't know how to handle it because you're not doing the right thing. You're not doing the thing that I wanted you to do. You're, you're outside of my control and it's making me furious. And so they, they kind of blow up their anger and they escalate in an attempt to regain control. If I can intimidate this person, if I can make this person feel fear, if I can just get them to do exactly what I want, then finally things will be right again. If you're the kind of person who needs to be in control, I mean, God's giving you opportunities. He's going to show you again and again that you're not. What you need to do as he's trying to show you that, you need to learn to let go and let God. I don't love cliche sayings like that, but like that one's pretty good, I think. I don't know. At, at least it's like, it has a really good truth in it. Let go and, and let God. Another good word for that, if you hate cliches, is surrender. All right? Uh, give up your control and hand it over to God. Now, that doesn't mean that you do become passive in your life and you, and you don't become active in anything. You should still do everything that you're able to do. You should pray and you should plan and prepare and you should work at accomplishing the things that you can, the things that God's put in your life to do. You should still be doing all those things, but then what you do is you leave the results to God and you trust him with any sort of deviations to the plan. You just go, well, you know what? This is in God's hands. This is where he's taking it. I trust him in, with that. The way that you know that you're doing this or you're growing in this, the way that you know you've surrendered and you've let go and you've actually started to trust in God is you start to get a sense of peace when things just go in ways that you don't expect. You get a sense of peace that says, whatever happens now, I've done what I can and the rest is in God's hands. The Apostle Paul, he shows us what this attitude looks like. In, in 2 Corinthians, he says this. This was, uh, he's talking about a, a prayer that he made to God. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my, weakness, my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I am strong 
he, he's learned the lesson, he's taken it to heart so much that he's, he has a sense of peace in the midst of all these things that no one's ever gonna choose for themselves. No one's gonna choose insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, like that's what I want in life. No one wants that, but Paul can be content with those things because he knows, for me it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. I'm not going to try to be God, I'm going to trust God. I can depend on his strength. I can trust that he has a plan and he can make that plan work. It's fine for me to not be enough because God is enough. God, he's starting to work this change into Moses. He's starting to, to shift the way that, um, that Moses sees himself so that he can finally see clearly who God is and what his need for God is. The way that he does this is, is he gives him this whole humbling experience. Like his plan collapses, his life as he knows it collapses, and, and God calls him away into the wilderness. He goes to the land of Midian, stops by a well there. Uh, the daughters of the priest of Midian, they go with their flocks to water their flocks, and some shepherds are not being nice. They're like trying to drive them away so they can water theirs and and Moses is still a man of compassion and justice, and so he stops them, and he makes sure that, that uh, the, the daughters of the priest of Midian, their flocks are watered. They go and tell their father, and he goes like, well, why didn't you invite him over? You know, like, we can't let this guy go. Um, and so, uh, so Moses, he, he goes, and he settles with them. He eventually marries and has a son who he names Gershom, which means sojourner. Like, I'm, I'm a sojourner, I'm a person without a home, and, uh, and that's just how they named people back then. Um, Egypt is where Moses gets a foundation in his life as an educated cultural elite, but also he gets his compassion, uh, his foundation for compassion and, and justice there and seeing how his people are being mistreated and identifying himself with them. Now in the wilderness, God is going to give Moses a foundation for his faith, and it starts with his humility. Uh, honestly, it seems like this is one of the ways that God likes to work. Uh, throughout the Bible, you see this again and again, that the, the way that people meet God, they have encounters with God that change them. The way that that happens usually is not at the height of their achievement and like their best moment. When people have encounters with God, they meet him in a way that changes them. They're at the low moments, right? They're, they're in the wilderness. They're at rock bottom. Sometimes the biggest blessing in your life could be when God makes you spend some time in the proverbial wilderness, right? In the place where you don't want to be there and it's not the easiest place for you to be, but it's only when you're there with the distractions removed and, and anything that made you feel like you did have control over your own life, with those things removed, that's when you finally get perspective on what really matters in life and you get perspective on how much you really, truly, deeply do depend on God. There's another cliche that I kind of like. It's uh, you, you never know God is all you need until God is all you have. You never know God is all you need until God is all you have. And that is true. 
I mean, you can know that you need God without losing everything, but it's when you lose everything that you're really confronted with the truth of that. It's, it's hard for us sometimes. Actually, no, it's always hard for us to make the decision to surrender ourselves to God, let go, and just trust him. Always hard to do that. When we do, and sometimes when you make that decision, it's because it, it's like the only one that you see in front of you. God's taken away every other choice. Um, if you've ever been in that position, if you've ever been at that, that sort of rock bottom, when you make that decision to finally surrender to him and trust him, that is what leads you to such freedom and peace that you never had when you were the one trying to hold it all together. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going over the Beatitudes. It's how he opens the sermon. The very first Beatitude that he gives us is this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's like the good attitude, the beautiful attitude to have in your heart that makes you blessed, that makes you happy, that that leads to you inheriting the the kingdom of heaven is a poor spirit. How do we get that? How do you acquire poverty of spirit? The answer is you don't. You don't have to acquire that poor in spirit that's what you are it's what you have what you need is awareness you need to realize like i'm not as good of a person as i think i am like i have a higher opinion of myself than the reality is and and if you need help with that just like a quick 10 second exercise you can do is this um I think this will work for everyone here, but just examine yourself and see if this is true for you. The way that you judge others and the way that you judge yourself uses two different standards. You judge yourself by your intentions and you judge others by their actions. Do you do that? Like if you end up hurting someone else, immediately start justifying, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't want that to happen. And you hope that they forgive you when someone else ends up hurting you, that's not where you jump. You don't want to hear it because they've hurt you. We're not as good as we think we are. Like, we're, we're sinners. There are ugly things in our hearts we don't want other people to know about. There are things in our hearts we don't want to be exposed and we're pretty good at ignoring that. But it's there. You're not as good at being God in your life as you need to be. Right? You don't, you're not really that great at control. You are poor in spirit. You just need awareness. The wilderness those humbling experiences that put you where you don't want to be and aren't comfortable for you to be in, those give you awareness. They help you to recognize you can't be God. You need God to be God. And the good news, the good news that you find there in the wilderness is he wants to be your God. You need God to be your God. He wants to be your God. The end of Exodus in chapter two says this, during, during those uh, many days, the king of Egypt died. So while Moses is gone in the wilderness, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up 
to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. While Moses is in the wilderness, the people of Israel, they're in their own wilderness experience. They're, they're suffering, they're crying out for help, crying out for rescue, and now we see that God does hear them. He sees them, he hears them, and he knows what it is that they're experiencing. He remembers the promise that he'd made with Abraham. And he's about, he's about to move. And God loves his people. He wants to be their God. He wants them to trust him so that he can lead them into freedom and peace and joy and forgiveness in life. He wants all those things. And one of the big uh, doubt questions that people have, like if, if you're someone who's skeptical about faith or you know someone who has one of the questions that always comes up is, if God is good and God is powerful, why does he allow so much evil and suffering in the world? Why doesn't he do something about it? Which is a great question. It's a question that no one should ever be flippant about answering. Um, there are ways to answer that in depth. I'm going to answer it briefly uh, because we're at the end uh, of, our, of our sermon here. I'm not gonna keep you forever. Um, the short answer is God has done something about it and he will do something about it again, which is, which is a final solution to the problem. What God has already done, God has sent his son Jesus. Um, salvation for us is impossible. For God, all things are possible. We can't be good enough and we don't have the tools to fix what's broken in us. Jesus is good enough and he can. He lives a perfect, sinless life and on the cross he takes our place. He takes our sin and he gives to us his own righteousness so that when we surrender, when we put our faith in him, trust that what he's done is enough for us, we're forgiven, we're seen as righteous before God and our relationship is repaired and we get the hope of eternal life. Jesus suffered on the cross because he loves us and he wants to rescue us from our sin and our suffering. And then, God will do something again at the end to finally, completely, and perfectly solve the problem of suffering on the earth. Jesus will come back and will enact perfect justice. He's going to right every wrong, and he's going to make all things new. But every day that Jesus does not come back, is another act of mercy from God who wants more people to know Jesus, wants more people to be forgiven and loved and set free. That's why he's delaying his return. It's because of his mercy. It's because of his love. God wants to be your God. Jesus wants to rescue you. He wants you to learn the truth that you are not enough on your own and that's okay because he is enough for you. 
He wants you to see that. Look at your life, look at your experiences, look at all the times you've been confronted with the fact that there are things outside of your control, things you're not able to do, problems you're not able to fix. Look in your own heart, look at the things, like the things that you long for to finally be happy and satisfied. You find something and it's good for a while, but then it's not enough. There's an emptiness in your heart that never completely goes away because God created you for eternal things that are found only in him. And only Jesus, only through Jesus can you have a way to be repaired in your relationship with God and receive those things. You don't have to try to be God. You just have to trust him. Are you willing to trust him? I hope you are. I I hope that you get to a place that you are. I hope it doesn't take much longer for you to learn the lesson that God wants you so desperately to, to learn that with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is something that he wants to do for you and he has done for you. Let me pray for us.